trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm feeling a little bit dangerous today. I am going to skate onto the thin ice. And I'm going to invite you to come and join me. I don't know. We'll see what the consequences are. You know, the battle for your mind is a real thing, and I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to encourage you to think clearly and independently about some of the things going on around us. You'll see what I mean here in just a moment. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as LifesavingFood.com. So among the things I'm going to be touching on today, uh, going to be questioning a couple of things about uh, the COVID vaccine. That's uh, that's enough to red flag, you know, a lot of uh, of the uh, the sensors out there, the facts checkers and so forth. But I want to start with the real hot button issue. This is the one that uh, you're not even supposed to think, much less say aloud. And that is, uh, what if there was fraud or otherwise uh, there were irregularities and uh, inconsistencies and potential manipulation in the election of last year? Now, that's not the same thing as saying Trump won. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not the same thing as saying the election was stolen. It's just simply asking the question and trying to follow the, the trails as to, is it possible that someone could have interfered? And, and, and this, it, the reason I bring this up is because there's, there's been some press about the Arizona election audit. What a curious event. In that it was apparently something that was taken very seriously. There was there was some uh, back and forth, you know, threats on, you know, all sides. Well, the Department of Justice doesn't want you to look at this. And we're not even supposed to question this. And as the report on the Arizona election audit came out, there was some very interesting damage control that took place. First of all, there was a, a preliminary synopsis or there was there was some kind of uh, advance information that was leaked to the press, which quickly released and says, well, you know what the Arizona audit found was Biden received even more votes than originally thought, and therefore he conclusively won. As if the, the purpose of that audit was to somehow unseat Biden and reinstate Trump. But that's not why it took place. It was not about, you know, reinstalling Trump, the rightful president. You know, it, it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't about unseating Biden. It was about checking the integrity of the process itself and seeing, was it, in fact, above board? Was it beyond reproach? And there's some very crucial information the press left out. So they did the first little initial, hey, well, you know, you can't, uh, uh, you can't say that, uh, that, that Biden is illegitimate. Why, look, he got more votes and uh, the matter is settled. <laughs> I think we've heard this before in, in a few other uh, tones there. But... There were very large inconsistencies that were found. And, and the, the most telling thing is how silent the media is about this right now. 
They came out with the first couple of little reports. Oh, this is to cast doubt on it. And then they have gone dark. They don't, they don't want to say anything. Which is where, this is where the alternative information sources, like yours truly, like uh, websites like AmericanThinker.com, come into play. Michael Kimmett has an article called What the Press is Leaving Out About the Arizona Election Audit. And I guess I, I should probably offer this disclaimer at the very beginning. My goal here is not to re-enthrone, you know, Donald Trump, nor is it to unseat Joe Biden. But I am very curious as to whether or not we can actually trust the election process or whether it's something that can just be manipulated at the will of those who are in power. Because it's looking that way, you know, in, in a pretty big way. So let's talk about this. Michael Kimmett says... The ethical corruption of our new national media has extended to a degree that once would have seemed unimaginable. We were exposed to yet another remarkable example with the reporting on the long-awaited audit of the 2020 presidential election results in Arizona. Widespread election fraud had been suspected in Maricopa County, the largest in the state, and the state legislature authorized a thorough forensic investigation. Now, a draft of the election report was leaked to the press last week, and every news outlet quickly released selectively chosen details. The message was straightforward. Well, this audit proves Joe Biden actually won the state's presidential election by even more than originally reported and thoroughly discredited any charges of election fraud. So here is, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. While the audit did find that a hand recount of all the original ballots did widen Joe Biden's margin by several hundred votes, the press deliberately and steadfastly ignored and left unreported the most critical results of the draft audit. Included among those original ballots, the most comprehensive election audit ever conducted established the following. More than 23,000 mail-in votes were cast under voter IDs from people who should not have received their ballots by mail because they had moved. More than 10,000 voters cast ballots in more than one county. More than 9,000 mail-in ballots were returned and counted than had been mailed out of registered voters. Thousands of official results did not match those who voted. Thousands more were cast in person in the name of those who had moved out of state. Logs and data files related to the election had been deliberately erased from the election management system or EMS server in violation of the law. Thousands of original ballots were duplicated more than once. Auditors were never provided with the required chain of custody documentation for the ballots, causing increased ambiguity regarding the accuracy of the election results. None of the various systems related to the election had numbers that would balance and agree with each other. And finally, Maricopa County officials actively interfered with the audit, withheld subpoena items, and refused to answer questions that are normally standard in such audits. But you know, other than that, it was all very clear and straightforward and the most honest and above-board election ever. Now, this is one county in one state. I would say that's some pretty reasonable doubt that's being cast there. Now, if, if people are concerned, well, Brian, that kind of talk is dangerous because it undermines the legitimacy of President Biden. And I don't know how to say this without sounding a little bit snarky, so here goes. 
Oh, you still give legitimacy to politicians? Any politicians? Maybe you haven't been paying attention to what these guys have been up to here lately, but I think real close about giving them any more credibility than you absolutely have to. Michael Kimmett says these and other innumerable irregularities were clearly identified and discussed in detail throughout the 114-page draft audit. But the mainstream, mainstream press focused on a single paragraph that reported a slight difference in the hand recount of original ballots that included a large number of, of, <clears throat> a large number of apparently fraudulently cast votes. He says details of the audit will be sent to the Arizona Attorney General for a possible criminal prosecution, and a number of recommendations are on the way to the state legislature seeking laws to eliminate widespread election fraud. Now, the purpose of the forensic audit was not to overturn the 2020 election. The purpose of the audit was to prevent future election corruption that was rampant in Maricopa County and elsewhere last year. Isn't it curious that the news media reported nothing on this? In 2000, the presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore was extended for weeks by seven Democrat appointees on, a rogue Florida, on the rogue Florida Supreme Court. And the media, which had done all they could to manipulate the reporting on Election Day by falsely declaring the swing state's outcome, desperately stayed on in hopes of finding proof their candidate should have won. A consortium of a dozen major news outlets spent more than a million dollars and a year of effort, only to reluctantly conclude that Bush had won after all. But 20 years later, the same companies had not the slightest interest to investigate innumerable reports of election fraud nationwide while ridiculing all those who wanted to find out what really happened. He says the performance of the press was shameful 20 years ago. It is repugnant now. And I don't know where that leaves us at this point. Look, I've been a skeptic about uh, you know elections for quite some time. I, I think, you know, we're, we're trained to think this is the highest uh, expression of our, our civic duty to get out there and vote. And if you're an informed voter, you know, and especially on local issues, that may be the case. You can probably make a difference. I don't know how it works as far as the national elections, but I think I agree with, uh, was it Mark Twain or H.L. Mencken? One of those guys said something along the lines, if voting really made a difference, they would have outlawed it by now. And I think I probably agree with that one more. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. You know, there's a part of me that almost feels just a tiny bit guilty because my my goal always, every time I sit down to do this show, is to not bring more fear or more anger to a world that's already overflowing with both of those qualities. It's It's just everywhere. But when I talk about some of the supply chain breakdowns, when I talk about, you know, the rising prices of food, and by the way, I've got a doozy of an article I'm going to be sharing with you in just a little bit about uh, what uh, what is, is likely to happen to economic markets. 
these are bad news. I get it. I don't, but I'm not trying to take advantage of this. I am very grateful, though, to have a sponsor like Life Saving Food that can make a difference for those who are willing to act rather than just sit back and wring their hands. So if you have concerns, if you feel like, boy, the instability of uh, you know everything right now would justify me being a little more prepared, whether that's uh, building onto my existing food storage program or starting a food storage program, if that's something that I finally think makes sense, I want you to check out lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the sponsor links there, or there's, yeah, you can, you can click on a link in my show notes at the com. Here's the important part. If you find a, a survival kit, a 72-hour kit, a starter kit, or even a long-term storage, you know, a program, you can save 20% on it. This is significant. We're talking 25-year shelf life. We're talking easily stackable square buckets that maximize for space. But by putting the coupon code HIDE in at checkout, H-Y-D-E, you get a 20% discount. Please check out my show notes for details. It's thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's talk about free speech and independent thought. I uh, became acquainted with John Rappaport many years ago and really appreciated his take on on how the media operates. I think he was, he was one of the first people who, who really dug deep into how media manipulates what we think. And this was at a time where I actually was watching the, you know, nightly news pretty much every night. And I, and I think about uh, how he would describe, like, for instance, if there, was, if there was a school shooting or something, we always knew what was the most important story of the day because the news anchor was actually on location. We are here in, you know, I forget what it was, Sandy Hook, you know, Sandy Hook Elementary, wherever that was, um, in, in Connecticut. We're here today because this is the most important thing. They're like the high priests or high priestesses of, of some religion. I'm here to tell you what to think and what to feel about this. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to, to say there's, there's a ton of psychological manipulation that goes on, particularly through our media. So when it comes to someone who can really deconstruct that and make it understandable, I think John Rappaport is one of the best. And he's got a great article about dangerous speech versus free speech and how uh, we have to deal with mobs of ignoramuses. Oh, you might get upset at the name-calling there, but I, I don't think he's inaccurate here. He starts with a quote from George Washington from 1783. George Washington said, For if men are to be precluded from offering their sentiments on a matter which may involve the most serious and alarming consequences, that can invite the consideration of mankind. Reason is of no use to us. The freedom of speech may be taken away, and dumb and silent we may be led, like sheep, to the slaughter. Now, John Rappaport says, Many people believe that spreading COVID falsehoods can be so dangerous that censorship is absolutely necessary. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Ron Paul Institute uh, YouTube channel was mysteriously taken down, like, like suspended, with no warning, no strikes, and then it was mysteriously re, uh, reactivated a short time later. And YouTube has said very clearly, we're going to, we're going to aggressively de-platform and, and 
cancel the accounts of people who spread what they call vaccine misinformation. Now, the crazy thing about that is, you know, the, the standard of, of, of what constitutes misinformation, that's a pretty fluid thing. Basically, anything that constitutes the official, that, uh, that contradicts, rather, the official narrative, well, that must be misinformation, and therefore we've got to, uh, we've got to ban it and, and squelch it. But what if someone's asking relevant information? What if they're asking relevant questions, trying to, to get a better understanding? How is censorship supposed to help us in that case? See, I'm not so sure about that. So back to John Rappaport, who reminds us that people believe, lots of people seem to believe that spreading COVID falsehoods can be so dangerous that it justifies censorship. But he says that view happens to be the central refuge of liars. And it turns out that big time liars always want to censor their opponents because it's the only leg they have to stand on. In an atmosphere for free discourse, they would fall. And of course, who decides what is false and what is true? Who hangs out that shingle and makes judgments that affect the lives of millions of people? Rappaport says there's an astounding level of ignorance here. Many people believe the truth should carry the day. Once it's established, there's no need to permit freedom of speech. But he says these people have a very low ceiling of understanding. They've never explored what freedom of speech is all about. They're citizens in name only. If someone says the vaccine is harmful, people will be dissuaded from taking it. That would be dangerous. Well, putting aside the fact that the vaccine is a destroyer, free speech implies living with danger. The remedy is intelligence and knowledge, and the only workable remedy is raising people's ability to consider all sorts of judgments, opinions, and conclusions without being irrationally swayed to one side or another. Otherwise, we have fascists on parade, mobs of clueless ignoramuses. He says, once upon a time, there was a never-never land called Dolt with millions of traffic lights. A writer penned, always cross the street when you're facing a red light. Stay on the curb when the light is green. Outrage followed. The writer was censored for dangerous speech. The rulers and their followers were so impressed with this victory that they established a national task force to root out falsehoods of all kinds and censor them. Pursuing this path, the society turned into a police state, and the majority of people approved. Now, his point in telling that story is, we're heading in that direction now. He has a quote here from John Stuart Mill from 1859. Strange it is that men should admit the validity of, their arg- of the arguments for free speech, but object to their being pushed to an extreme not seeing that unless the reasons are good for an extreme case, they are not good for any case. John Rappaport says it's no surprise that modern civilization, intellectually based on a fool's version of science, has built science as a new religion, with all the restrictions that organized religions have enforced. After all, when the teachings of a man called Jesus were incorporated into a powerful church, that church set about censoring, imprisoning, torturing, and burning dissidents as if Jesus would have approved. Centuries later, people were shocked to learn that this church was rife with pedophile priests. He says, I'd be shocked to learn the church isn't filled with pedophiles. Many are the other <clears throat> secret, many of the other secret crimes that uh, men in power today are committing, given that they're already pushing relentlessly a highly destructive vaccine into the arms of a billion people. They have to demand censorship of dissidents. 
So he says, no, I'm not surprised that the press and social media and politicians are trying to censor COVID information, which doesn't serve their purposes. We'll come back to John Rappaport's article here in a few minutes. And I'm not suggesting that, boy, therefore you should be just as anti-COVID vaccine or any other vaccine as possible. But what I am suggesting is maybe it's okay if people hold a different point of view or they have reservations for whatever reasons. I mean, you're still free to pursue your course of action. You can choose to get the vaccine or not. But how would adding more information into that mix, more points of view, more opinions, be a problem? I mean, you are capable of independent thought, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. And the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is ready to help any of my listeners within the state of Utah who are looking to secure a home loan. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, these are the folks you want to count on to get you your loan quickly. Because uh, the real estate market being what it is, you've got to move pretty quickly if you're going to get the home of your dreams. You find it on the market, it ain't going to be there for very long. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435 703 4522. And yes, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. So I'm sharing this article from John Rappaport. This is <clears throat> from his blog, nomorefakenews.com. And we're talking about the censorship of dissidents, particularly as it applies to COVID information. John Rappaport says, consider this, a week ago at a standard FDA conference to discuss recommending COVID boosters, several scientists testified that convincing data to support the additional shots were entirely lacking. In fact, two leading in-house FDA scientists had just resigned because they opposed the push for the boosters. And finally, the FDA committee as a whole rejected the present need for boosters. But the following day, the head of the NIH and the White House itself ignored the FDA and said the boosters were coming. Even the FDA was effectively censored. Rappaport says there are thousands of scientists all over the world who strenuously oppose the official COVID narrative. And they can't even get a glance from editors of medical journals when they submit papers. Talking heads uh, on the news are feeding the population fast food COVID science. A a manufactured product consisting of synthetic BS about cases, deaths, and the virus, the vaccine. But Rappaport says it's cardboard and no dissenters are allowed. He says, since I stopped writing for mainstream and so-called alternative outlets in the early 1990s, I've gone my own way. As of this writing, I'm still here. My videos have been taken down. My site was hacked. We restored it. I'm still here. And he says, I take freedom of speech seriously, no matter what. John Rappaport says, only low scum want to censor us. They make an absurd pretense of claiming we're liars, but we don't want to censor them. That's called a clue. 
Right now, as I write this, he says, Australian men with balls, union construction workers, are staging an insurrection against their union bosses who are colluding with corrupt politicians to enforce COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates. The workers are facing off against cops in the street. This is one of the biggest stories in the world. And the New York Times and the Washington Post and the news networks should be leading with it and covering breaking developments wall to wall. But instead, they're downplaying it and hiding it. They're news whores. And these, the, they are the news, these news whores, he says, and their pimps are holding the line for fascism. So he says, I'll close for now with this story. Months ago, an alternative journalist approached me, urging me to stop saying the pandemic virus doesn't exist. Now, John Rappaport says, I sized up the complaint. It seemed to have several roots. One was I was confusing people who couldn't decide what to believe. Two, there were far more important COVID issues that needed to be explored. And three, that journalist was receiving emails citing my work and asking for clarification. And this was bothersome, especially when the emailers agreed with me. So he says, the journalist offhandedly and blithely assumed I would obey and stop writing about the existence of the virus. But of course, he says, I reacted oppositely. I always do. I dig deeper and farther along the track I'm pursuing. In this case, I found and wrote more evidence for the non-existence of the virus. Now, that issue happens to be central and basic to the whole COVID story. And if writing about it confuses some people, that's what happens when free speech is still possible. There's nothing wrong with confusion. It's productive. It's supposed to be a prelude to more profound understanding. So John Rappaport says, I'm not running some sort of operation that seeks uniformity. That journalist was trying to censor me by having me censor myself. No dice. He quotes Wendell Phillips, who said, He who stifles discussion secretly doubts whether what he professes to believe is really true. And John Rappaport responds, Those fools who can only opt for the truth will never grasp the meaning of the First Amendment, and they'll never see the freight train of fascism coming. Now, I understand it could throw some people for a way. Did he say, did he say that there is, uh, <laughs> there is no virus? You know, yeah, he did. Well, doesn't that disqualify him from having an opinion? I don't know. He, it's, look, is, is it possible he could be wrong about that, but right about other things? I mean, that's, that's the kind of question a thinking person would ask. And if you, if you just understand, you can learn truth from any source, but the ultimate uh, decision as to is it truth or is it not, that comes down to you and me being willing to do our homework and to, to, to suss it out and decide, does this make sense or not? And, and it's totally okay at any point of that inquiry process to say, I don't know. So I might disagree with John Rappaport on the idea that uh, there is no virus. I think there probably is based on, on what I have seen. But it's not the virus that concerns me. Because whatever it is, you know, the survival rate is still well above 99% for most people. Unless you have some comorbidities or you're, you know, over 80 years of age. But I'll make my own mind up, and I would encourage you, make your mind up too. This is too important to, to leave in the hands of somebody else who can figure it out and, you know, tell us what to think. So don't be afraid. You might encounter error. In fact, guaranteed, you're going to encounter error. Now, I may even be the source of some of that error. 
I try not to, but you know what? I'm human, and it's possible. It's possible. I could I could get hoodwinked. But don't try to silence other people. Don't try to, to limit, you know, the, the points of view that can be brought to the table. I think I'd have to agree with, uh, with Milton, you know, who says, you know, whoever knew truth to be, you know, for the worse when it grapples with falsehood. It will eventually prevail. But the most important thing is you have to remember that battle for your mind is real. You are the best truth detector for your worldview. You're the one who has to make the decision. What do I believe? What do I actually believe enough that I will live my life according to those beliefs? Don't ever outsource that. All right, are you ready for some uh, you ready for some straight up hard truth? I think a lot of us have been pretending that economically well, things are things are tough or, you know, we may have a few challenges, but otherwise, you know, everything's okay. Could our situation be reaching a critical mass? Now, I understand this is a scary thought. But I want to pose a question. If there was a market crash that nobody thinks is possible that was coming, would you rather brace for impact or would you rather be blindsided? I know how I would answer that question. I don't know. You know I'm not going to answer for you. But I want to share with you a thought or two from Charles Hugh Smith on the market crash that nobody thinks possible is coming. He says, A banquet of consequences is being served, and the risk-off crashes are like revenge, best served cold. Charles Hugh Smith says, The ideal setup for a crash is a consensus that a crash is impossible. In other words, just like the present. Sure, there are carefully measured murmurings about a correction, but nobody with anything to lose in the way of public credibility is calling for an honest-to-goodness crash, a real crash, not a wimpy, limp-wristed dip that will immediately be bought. He says, what I'm calling for is a rip-your-face-off, weeping bitter tears over the grave of the speculative wealth that you thought was going to be forever, crash. All those buying the dip, because the Fed will never let the market go down, will be crushed like scurrying cockroaches. And all those trying to rotate into the next hot sector or asset class will also be crushed like scurrying scurrying cockroaches, because when the everything bubble pops, well, everything pops. And he says there is no shelter in a risk-off cascade. See, I don't even understand half the, the language he's using. Those who do, you know, Feel free to respond. Maybe maybe this makes sense. Charles Hugh Smith says the crash is coming as a result of multiple mutually reinforcing dynamics. The first being that no serious person believes a crash is possible, much less imminent. And from here he goes in no particular order into a raft of other causally consequential triggers of a cascading market crash. Now, unfortunately, we're up against the brakes. We'll have to pick those up in the next segment. I don't share this with you because, oh boy, this is going to make you so scared. I don't play the market, so you know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm feeling like maybe, maybe I'm, I'm at, at some degree of safety here. But I think this is the kind of thing we really need to know ahead of time, position ourselves for as best we can, and maybe just hang on because it looks like the ride is going to get bumpy.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, if you stuck it out for this segment, uh, my friend, you have nerves of steel. That's okay. The willingness to embrace unpleasant facts doesn't mean that you're a masochist. It doesn't mean you're wishing for anything bad to happen. But economically, you know, things have been teetering for a long time. I think, uh, who was it? Fred Reed used to talk about how the U.S. economy is wheezing along on life support. And I have, I've marveled at how long things have, have held on, how, how far we have gone, how, how Congress has been able to kick the can down the road over and over again. But I seriously think the time is coming where this is just not going to be an option. And Charles Hugh Smith says there is a market crash coming that nobody thinks is possible. And here are some of the reasons why. He says, as I noted in my call for the top, Is anyone willing to call the top of the everything bubble? This was published back on September 6th. There is no history to support the widespread confidence that the extremes of overvaluation, leverage, euphoria, and speculation last forever, or even much longer than the lifespan of a cockroach. He says we're well past that benchmark into unprecedented insanity. So what happens next? Squish. Just for the record, he says the Dow topped out on August 13th, The S&P topped out on September 2nd, and the NASDAQ topped out a day after his call, September 7th. Close enough for government work. Secondly, he points to the credibility of the Federal Reserve being in the dumpster, which just caught fire. And he has a link to another article. The Fed is fatally corrupt, and so is the rest of America's status quo. He says the Fed is corrupt on multiple levels, thoroughly, completely corrupt. And so are all of its minions, proxies, apparatchiks, toadies, apologists, and lackeys. This is finally leaking through the Fed corruption containment vessel. Even as the lackeys in the billionaire-owned corporate media are now fearful of losing whatever tattered shreds of credibility they still possess by refusing to acknowledge Fed corruption, overreach, and hubris. And so at long last, the Fed no longer walks on water. The Fed's fraudulent travesty of, of uh, mockery of a scam sham has finally breached the three-foot-thick four, three containment walls, and the putrid stench of Fed corruption can no longer be bottled up. And then he points out, like any good kleptocratic Politburo, the Fed cashiered the two most indefensible scapegoats to divert attention from the equally corrupt incumbents presiding over the collapse of Fed credibility. That would be uh, raising taxes on the wealthy. He says, don't be surprised if the scapegoats are airbrushed out of official photos per officially approved propaganda. Number three, he says, as I detailed in the U.S. economy in a nutshell, when critical parts are in indefinite back order, the machine grinds to a halt. And another article titled, Sorry Fed, Inflation is Already Embedded. He says, the fuel of the inflation rocket has just ignited and the clueless, corrupt Fed is watching the boost phase in abject, humiliating confusion, as the Fed is now completely powerless, having blown the opportunity to get ahead of the curve by reducing their making billionaires richer stimulus a year ago. But he says inflation is not just embedded, it's global. Natural gas prices could triple in entire regions 
without even breathing hard. The cost of other essentials could just as easily triple without breaking a sweat. Inflation crushes risk on speculative markets like, well, scurrying cockroaches. Squish. Number four, he says the Fed has lost control of yields. We all know that liars reveal their dishonesty via micro signals. And he says, with this in mind, he encourages you slow down the video of Fed Politburo speakers, starting with Chairperson Powell. Wealth inequality soaring. It's not our doing, etc. Oops. He says the cat is out of the bag. The Fed has lost control of yields. Trust in the Fed's godlike powers is wavering. As punters and players realize the Fed's shuck and jive has finally lost its power to wow the greedy and the credulous. He says rising yields crush risk on speculative markets like scurrying cockroaches. Number five, China is not saving the world this time. And he links to another article he's written called What's Really Going On in China. This was published on September 23rd. Charles Hugh Smith says China has other fish to fry and it isn't bailing out global markets like it did in previous bubble pops. Squish. Number six, the rising dollar is kryptonite to speculative markets, emerging market debt and risk on euphoria. Sorry about that, but he says you know what happens next. Squish. Number seven, the retail bag holders are now all in. This is, this is the one that uh, I actually partially understood and, and it was alarming. To consider this, as he noted in his article published on September 8th, please don't pop our precious bubble. The retail punters have finally gone all in on the this bubble will never pop everything bubble. As he observed back in August, Charles Hughes Smith in his article, the smart money has already sold. Retail bag holders have poured more cash into the everything bubble than they did in the past decade or two. And he says, that is the most reliable signal that a bubble is about to pop. Sorry about that. Number eight, the buy the dip crowd has been so well trained that they will provide the necessary buying to keep the cascade from gathering too much momentum. A stair step down that sucks in the buy the dip buyers is ideal for those profiting from the decline. First up, a rally to close the quarter positively to make it appear that every money manager beat the index funds and so on. But the net result is still, still they're going to get squished like cockroaches. Consequences can be put off for some time, he says, but the rot beneath the machinations only amplifies the eventual collapse. The banquet of consequences is being served and the risk-off crashes are, like revenge, best served cold. Now I get it. That's a, that is a truckload of bad information or ugly information. And I don't want you to sit back and take it with like, oh, paralyzing fear. There's nothing we can do. We're just going to have to learn to adapt and perhaps uh, adjust you know, and, and improvise because the way things have gone, the way things that we've grown accustomed to things being, that's not going to be around for a whole lot longer. And I, I realize that that very prospect of change is scary for a lot of people. But if there was ever a time to become crystal clear on the things that you have control over versus the things that you don't, this is it. I feel for the people who, you know, have all of their money tied up in, you know, their, their retirement accounts and whatnot. Um, 
you know, basically the, the majority of their, their money exists in electronic form. It's not in a tangible form. And when a crash comes, like Charles Hugh Smith is talking about, I think we're going to see a lot of people get to get wiped out. Whether it's the, the dollar just simply becoming, you know, no longer a tenable currency. I mean, we're already seeing some rumblings that perhaps it won't be the world's reserve currency. What are these people going to do? You know, again, I don't have the answer. I, I'm, I'm not trying to create fear by, by pointing this out, but just the reality is this borrow, borrow, borrow mentality could not go on forever. Easy money has made a lot of people get deeply into debt. It has changed our perspective on what is money versus what isn't. In my opinion, the people who are going to do best through the times ahead, especially as the market crashes, are going to be the people who have invested in things like commodities, whether that be land, whether that be seeds, tools, food, barterable goods, skills. Those are people who have something tangible. You know, notice I'm not saying, yes, you put it all into gold and silver. I think that it's actually wise for a person to have, you know, a degree of precious metals, just, you know, a portion of of their savings in that. But I really feel for the people who've got all their money strictly in electronic form. And I think that uh, we're, we're going to see a huge adjustment where, you know, what, what we see today is the middle class is suddenly going to become the lower class. And it's going to happen probably much quicker than, than most of us would like. Rather than focus on, oh, look at what we've lost. Look at this, you know, how terrible things are. What if we were to instead focus on how can we help each other? How can we support one another, look out for one another, even if all of us are basically, uh, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire? You know, if you have doubts that this can be done, I have a great book I'd like to recommend. It's from Dr. Viktor Frankl, and it's called, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Dr. Frankl at one time was... Uh, He was a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II. But he came out of that experience a better man and had some remarkable insights to offer as well. So when things are bad, that doesn't mean all is lost. It just means you got to dig a little deeper to find the good in you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.